Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 3rd of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson. Myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Approaches. Exposure. Sorry, Northern Exposure. Apologies, David, from north of the border. And uh, we've also got Mark Anderson reporting from the USA. Um, okay, well, on uh, Friday's programme, uh, basically at the same time we started Friday's programme, Vladimir Putin was giving his uh, speech uh, over the claiming of the four territories in uh, the Donbass. Um, so let's just uh, have a quick look at some of the points that he made, because uh, some of the things he said were, were quite interesting. So first of all, sanctions were not enough for the Anglo-Saxons. They moved on to sabotage. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it is a fact that they organised the blasts on the Nord Stream International Gas Pipelines which run along the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Uh, in fact, they began to destroy the pan-European energy infrastructure. Uh, it's clear to everyone who benefits from this. Uh, who benefits from this? Of course, he who benefits did it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think he's spot on. I think it's very interesting that he, he's talking about Anglo-Saxon, so he's being very pointed in what he's talking about here. But of course, to say that the uh, Russians destroyed their own pipeline is, is just an incredible claim. And it's very noticeable that having claimed that, the West is now letting everything slide. So as, as Patrick Henningsen said on Friday, very little in the American press about this. Uh, perhaps Mark Anderson's got a comment on it, but the BBC has let it drift over uh, under all of the economic matters. So the fact that a major strategic pipeline was destroyed in what we could call a terrorist attack. Uh, nobody wants to talk about it anymore. Um, but the speech in general was covering a broad range of topics. It wasn't just the pipeline or the, or the annexation and so on. Uh, so for example, this, uh, do we really want here in our country, in Russia, instead of mum and dad, to have parent number one, parent number two, number three, have they gone completely insane? Uh, do, they, do we want our schools to impose on our children the ideas that certain other genders exist along with women and men and to offer them gender reassignment surgery? Uh, is that what we want for a country and our children? Uh, we have a different future, our own future. Uh, David, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, on the pipeline is clearly correct. I mean, as we were reporting last week, uh, Radek Sikorsky, um MEP, I tweeted out, tweet now deleted, thank you USA, when the pipeline was blown up. Um, and the the claim that it's that it was the Russians blowing up their own pipeline is simply laughable. The uh, attack on what you might term wokeness, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, the attack on these elements which are destroying Western society is also very interesting. And he's saying he wants no part of it. And he's saying that Western influence comes with these uh, flaws, diseases, if you will, viruses is probably a good analogy. Um, and he wants no part of it. And this is going to resonate with many people in the West who also want no part of it. And we'll be reporting on some, some of those people uh, later in the news. Uh, let's move on with it then. He went on to say, the truth has been drowned in an ocean of myths, illusion and fakes using extremely aggressive propaganda, lying like Goebbels. Uh, the most unbelievable, sorry, the more unbelievable the lie, the quicker people will believe it. That's how they operate, uh, the West that is, according uh, to this principle. 
uh, but people cannot be fed with printed dollars and euros. Uh, you can't feed them with those pieces of paper and the virtual uh, inflated capital, uh, capitalization of Western social media companies uh, that can't heat their homes. Um, those two paragraphs did run into each other in that way. Uh, but uh, clearly he is uh, using very much, uh, very strong language with respect to the way narratives are being portrayed and the way that economic policy is being run in, uh, in the UK and Europe and the US. Well, yes, I mean, the, it, it does kind of feed more than one thing into the one paragraph, which is, which is, which is slightly odd. Maybe it's, we've lost a bit in translation there. But the idea that, um, the, the, the printing paper notes, quantitative easing um, and, and inflation is, is uh, anything else than harmful again, will resonate with people who see the harm every day. They see the harm every time they go to the shops and they're trying to feed their families. They see the harm when they get their, their, their fuel bills in. Um, so again, this is, this is speaking to things which are accurate. And as a result, it will resonate, uh, including with many people in the West uh, observing this speech. Yeah, I mean, I think the, two, the reason the two paragraphs run together in that way is because the propaganda is, of course, that the reason that the West is in serious financial and economic problems at the moment is all because of Putin and his war. Uh, and uh, we'll be coming on to that in a little bit later. Uh, but uh, th this uh, perhaps a little bit more controversial then, uh, it's worth reminding the West that it began its colonial policy back in the Middle Ages, uh, followed by the worldwide slave trade, the genocide of Indian tribes in America and plunder of India and Africa, the wars of England and France against China, as a result of which China was forced to open its ports to the opium trade. Uh, what they did uh, was, to, was get entire nations hooked on drugs and purposefully exterminated entire ethnic groups for the sake of grabbing land and resources, uh, hunting people like animals. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, this is, this is a bit of a contradiction with, with some of the earlier stuff because this is a cultural Marxist line, the attack on the West, right? So what he's saying there is everything that the Anglo-Saxon nations stand for is, is the, the ultimate in corruption and genocide. And that's the attack of the cultural Marxists to destroy the confidence of the British and American people, principally, in their own history, in their own identity, in their own countries. Now, this is, of course, contrary to what he's trying to do for the Russian people, which is the exact reverse, right? Now, if we're looking at unfortunate and bloody history, Russia's got more than a little to go around, right? We've got the Holodomor, um, Eight million Ukrainians were starved to death, right? So it's an odd direction for him to go in. And I think a bit contradictory because elsewhere he's saying that the problem with the West is the whole cultural Marxist attack on identity, attack on family, attack on nation, attack on faith. And now he's joining in some of that attack. So you see here where once the bullets start flying, consistency kind of goes out the window. Um, that's unfortunately true for every war. It's fascinating times, though, David, that uh, we're, we're hearing this from uh, Putin. My mind goes way back to the Cold War when, of course, supposedly it was easy. We were on the good side and it was those nasty communists on the other side. And yet we're hearing we're hearing many words that, as you say, people in this country can uh, uh, resonate with. And then we get a little bit of a drift back the other way. It's it's complex situation. I don't know whether Mark has got something to add to this. He was looking. 
Yeah, absolutely. When I was at the Red Pill Conference in July in Indianapolis, Dr. David Martin, and this is an article still posted on the UK website, UK column website, he spoke of the opium trade. And there is truth, however, to what Putin's saying there. Uh, that is what was done by Great Britain uh, at that time. They did want to force the Chinese to open their gates to opium and the extreme addiction that that brings. So I don't know that it has a Marxist bent so much. I'd have to think that over. But historically, there's some truth to that. And uh, Dr. Martin made a pretty good case of it at the Red Pill Conference. Thank you. For, thank you, Mark. Uh, let's come on to this one then, because this, uh, this is quite to the point. Uh, let me repeat that the dictatorship of the Western elites targets all societies, including the citizens of Western countries themselves. This is a challenge to all. This complete renunciation of what it means to be human. Uh, the overthrow of faith and traditional values and the suppression of freedom are coming to resemble a religion in re reverse, pure Satanism. Now, that's very strong words. Uh, yeah, again, this is, uh, this is quite a, an incredible choice of language. I think a lot of people in this country also would also resonate with what he is saying here. But uh, we're in a difficult position because, of course, our own churches have abandoned the flock. So people... Uh, who, who are still spiritually aware are not getting the kind of warnings that they should be about what's happening, what Western governments are doing. And it's really incredible that Putin has, has, has come forward with this line. Um, David, is, is this also part of Putin uh, appearing to show an interest in protecting the Russian Orthodox Church? To, to an extent, perhaps, but again he's he's speaking here he's speaking really quite truthfully and quite astutely it's not a um an opposite of religion it, it is a religion right so whether you analyze it in terms of uh satanism whether you analyze it in terms of the ideas of marxism and everything that flows from it you you always end up at it's essentially a religion and it is essentially against human thriving. And this can be seen in any one of a huge range of ways. And he's correct in calling this out. Um, to actually call it outright Satanism is unusual. It's not many people who will name it. Um, uh, the um, Stephen Molyneux, the now banned by most media um, uh, philosopher uh, in Canada, was calling out that, that, that socialism is Satanism and is starting to explore these similarities. Um, this is um, unusual to go in that direction, to actually call it that. Um, but in many ways, this is a correct analysis. And the nature of Satanism is uh, of re rejection of everything good and, and destruction and deception. The, the, the key thing about Satanist religions is they operate based on deception. They never reveal what they are up front. And that's very much what we're facing in the West and it's what he's seeing. So again, there's a lot of substance in what he's saying there. Okay, and let's just uh, end off with this one then, because he said, uh, I want uh, the K Kiev authorities and the real masters in the West to hear me so that they remember this. People living in Lugansk and Donetsk and Kherson and uh, Zaporozhye uh, are becoming our citizens forever. Um, so that was absolutely clear. Uh, but what did uh, Mr. Zelensky do in Ukraine? Well, here we are. Uh, he decided that he would uh, uh, attempt to join 
NATO as quickly as possible. So he uh, announced he had signed an application for an expedited entry into NATO. Uh, he assured people in Ukraine that the entire territory of our country will be liberated from this enemy, uh, the enemy not only of Ukraine, but also of itself, humanity, law and truth. Russia already knows this. It feels our power. Uh, it sees that it's here uh, in Ukraine and we prove the strength of our values. And that's why it is in a hurry or organizes this farce uh, with the attempted annexation, tries to steal something that does not belong to it and so on. Um, well, he signed that. Uh, unfortunately, it uh, although it has had some support within NATO, so here we have uh, uh, nine, I think it's nine NATO countries. Uh, have we got Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Montenegro and North Macedonia. Uh, a joint statement together with the presidents of those countries. I reiterate our support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. We firmly stand behind the 2008 Bucharest NATO summit decision concerning Ukraine's future membership. Uh, however, the United States wasn't so excited. Uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the national security advisor, saying the United States has been clear for decades that we support an open door policy for NATO. Any decision on NATO membership is between the 30 allies uh, and the countries aspiring to join. Right now, our view is that the best way for us to support Ukraine is through practical on-the-ground support in Ukraine, uh, and that process in Brussels should be taken up at a different time. Um, so uh, it didn't go quite so well for uh, for Zelensky, David, uh, but perhaps there's uh, uh, movement in other directions. Just before we leave the Zelensky-Kiev front, uh, there was one extract from the Putin speech that, that you didn't cover, and I think it's very significant. He's speaking to the Kiev authorities and the real masters in the West. And I think, again, that's, 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 that's a valid point. Um, he said, we call on the Kiev regime to immediately end hostilities, end the war they unleashed back in 2014 and return to the negotiating table. We are ready for this, but we'll not discuss the choice of the people in Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, Zofari and Kherson. Uh, that has been made. Russia will not betray them. So he's offering an end to hostilities. Okay, that's significant. Now, there's no sign that Zelensky's taking that up. Um, I don't think that's the right decision. I don't think that's the right decision for the Ukrainian people. But there is an offer, and this is the first public offer we've seen in a long, long time, of peace talks. And what has there been in response from the West? Has there been anything positive from the West, from the Ukrainians of the West, in response to that? No, not a word. Quite the opposite, insightful policy. Yeah. And perhaps, yes. perhaps we yeah. can also add that, of course, Boris Johnson is uh, now out of the picture and Liz Truss is under huge pressure. So whether Zelensky feels that uh, he's going to take advice from the British from now on is going, to, is going to be very interesting. I say that because, of course, many people believe that it was Boris Johnson that squashed the previous peace talks. Uh, indeed. So uh, speaking of NATO expansion, then, David, uh, Finland and Sweden... Yeah, so here we've got a piece from the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And in case you were wondering, Mike, yes, there are eight Ukrainians there at the uh, NATO Parliamentary Assembly, but they don't have voting rights. They're just there as observers for the moment. And they're reporting on who and when has, uh, has endorsed the uh, session of Finland and Sweden. Sweden, and you see 28 countries, starting with Canada on July the 5th, uh, ending, on, ending with Slovakia on September the 27th. Uh, have endorsed this uh, move to include Finland and Sweden in NATO. There are only two holdouts so far, 
Hungary and Turkey. And um, here we have the Atlantic Council um, discussing this matter with their publication, The New Atlanticist. And they're asking, when will Sweden and Finland join NATO? And they're, they're commenting on this. And when they get to Turkey, they say the following. Uh, there are three considerations um, that influence the uh, ratification of the Swedish and Finnish application. The first uh, will be the action by the applicants to fulfil commitments made, to, made on Turkish security and counter-terrorism. The second uh, consideration is the 2023 presidential elections where Erdogan will avoid, uh, want to avoid appearing too soft or hasty on accession. And the third is a potential Turkish military operation against the PKK in Syria. Having the accession process ongoing but not yet complete will western criticism of such an operation, but there will be a point at which a perceived delay could uh, conversely lead to increase, increasing western frustration and pressure. So that gives you an, an example of the geopolitical games that are currently being played over the expansion of NATO, although we are, it should be pointed out, 28 thirtieths of the way to having uh, Finland and Sweden in NATO. Okay, uh, we wait to see. Well, um, Mark, perhaps we could bring you in here because uh, you've got an article from American Free Press on the breakaway uh, republics that are now part of Russia. Oh yeah, uh, this article is not telling you anything particularly new, but one point that it does make, and Paul Craig Roberts, a noted American columnist who of course was under Reagan's Treasury Department at one time when he was younger, uh, he also says this, that now that these four regions have evidently voted to join the Russian Federation, now any Ukrainian attack on those regions would be considered an attack on the Russian Federation. That's probably the takeaway point, the best one from this AFP article in the latest edition. So that's rather worrisome, uh, although I was a little surprised that the U.S. had such cold feet, uh, as I'm hearing this morning, such cold feet on Ukraine uh, joining NATO. They sound kind of tentative about it. I thought they'd be walking, welcoming it with uh, open arms, but they're not. So maybe that'll put a break on this a little bit. But nevertheless, it's still um, a food for thought, to say the least that those four regions, uh, if they're attacked by Ukraine, would now be evidently considered an attack on Russia herself. So that's a tripwire we'll have to keep a close eye on. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. And uh, we're just popping this uh, clip. It's from uh, Sky News, using children in order to get the West propaganda out. And I think we should watch this clip thinking about what Putin actually uh, has said about the, the use of uh, propaganda in the West. Let's just look at what Sky is doing with these youngsters. Coming up, people in East Ukraine are ordered to vote on whether they should become part of Russia but is it what they really want? What do you think? Is this fake news or fact? For many Ukrainians around the world, the last few days have been a worrying time. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, who ordered the invasion of Ukraine six months ago, ordered votes to take place in parts of Ukraine that Russian troops are occupying. 
asking people if they want their town or village to remain in Ukraine or become part of Russia. A vote like this is called a referendum. There were reports that Russian soldiers were going to people's houses and watching them make their choice, so they might not have voted how they wanted to. That's so scary. Most world leaders are saying that the vote is illegal and that the results shouldn't be trusted. Zarina and her big sister Vika came to England because their city in Ukraine was bombed. It makes me really angry when I watching videos like that. All of these events which are taking place here, uh, the majority of them are fake. David, excuse me, David, I'll throw that one back, back to you. But to my mind, this is, this is just raw propaganda. And how cynical can you get that you take youngsters who clearly have no concept of the complexities as to what's happening in Ukraine and you use them in this, uh, in this very cynical way to help brainwash other children into believing what, what, is, what is being put out in this Sky product. That's a fair summary. Um, I mean, children obviously are are are, are going to generate sympathy, general, you know. So it's it's an effective propaganda tool. It just doesn't have much to do with the truth. Uh, even the description there seemed to suggest that the voting was was taking place in individual homes under the watchful eye of heavily armed Russian soldiers, not in polling stations. Right, and this isn't the case. And um, you know, we know from Vanessa and others there. There, there certainly was the appearance of free and fair elections, and a, and a large turnout and a large and a large vote, and it's it's always the case that these that these votes, when they're not endorsed by the West, uh, by the, the 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 deep state, if you like, in the West, um, are uh, just ignored. I mean, even even for example, the Irish referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, well, that was just ignored. You just have to vote again to get it right. You know, do do, do it again. So these votes, these don't count. Other votes, they become the very definition of rightness, of, of righteousness, of truth, and cannot be gainsaid. And which it is, well, that depends on your political position. And this shows the hypocrisy that's being, that's being played out here. Um, hypocrisy backed up by uh, propaganda, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, I suppose uh, for this next section, David, we've got to give a health warning uh, and do advise people that uh, they could find what we're about to show extremely disturbing. But let's uh, move on to Tony Blair. Yes. Now, to everyone, I'd have to say this is why this is why the people in the UK call and get the big bucks. I watch this so you don't have to. This is Tony Blair, uh, Ditchley Foundation Annual Lecture. Now, actually, the Ditchley Foundation Annual Lectures, if you go to the website, there is actually a lot of good stuff there if you want to know what the great and the good and the deep state are talking about. There's actually quite a lot of useful information there, or some of it, like Tony, is a hard watch. So uh, I've got just a small, a small extract here from the end of his speech, basically to annoy Brian. Um, what he said was, after all, what is motivating the brave people of Ukraine to suffer such heartbreak? They do it because they know freedom is worth fighting for. Their peril should awaken us to ours. The old assumptions have disintegrated, the world is moving at its own pace and it won't wait for us. The inflection point in some ways is more grave than 45 or 80. We require organisation, intellectual heft, there we go, uh, sustained focus and a sense of common purpose and a shared strategy to achieve it. My final point, this won't happen unless we heal our own politics. 
How did Britain ever get to a point where Nigel Farage and Jeremy Corbyn came for a short but consequential time to shape our politics? Or America to a place where you, whether you got vaccinated, denoted political allegiance? Yeah, how did that happen, Tony? Um, the craziness in our own politics has to stop. We can't afford the luxury of indulging fantasy. We need to put reason and strategy back in the saddle and we need to do so with urgency. Now, the, the, the reason that I inflicted this on, on both of you and on our viewers and on Mark is that the whole tone of this speech is these people, these leaders, know that they are no longer in control. They know they've lost the confidence in the people and they know that politics in the West is a shambles and isn't capable of leading anything. They know the nature of the crisis they're in and they don't know what to do about it. Tony's suggestion is we need a new Tony Blair because he's Tony Blair and that's all he's going to come up with. Um, and he's pointing out some of the problems that the ruling elite see Right? That they are no longer in control of very much and they don't know what to do about it. And I, and I think it's a very interesting speech if you read between the lines. Reading between the lines is they're at sea. They don't know what to do. Uh, they're, losing, they're losing what's termed the information war. They're losing the argument. They lost the argument over COVID. They lost the argument over many things. They're losing the argument over the pipeline. They're losing many arguments. The narrative's falling apart. They don't know what to do. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely true. But we still have to suffer him. He goes on and on and on, unfortunately. Um, right, which brings us to uh, a map. Yes, so this is the recent events in, in Ukraine actually on the battlefront. Now, it's always been the case that what happens in the front line will ultimately determine where the lines in the map are drawn at the end of the day and will determine to a very large extent that plus the economic war will determine how this actually goes. Things like human suffering and international law notwithstanding. Um, so the latest is there's been a, a further advance um, by the Ukrainian forces. So Lehman um, and there, uh, has been taken, um, surrounded and then taken, and the Russians evacuated that in some haste uh, back towards uh, Kremina, and the the war goes on. Now the the point I want to make here is. There's very little information coming out, reliable information coming out of this conflict zone. Very little. And we're, we're having to piece together what we think is happening from scraps and from sources which are often heavily biased in one direction or another. To me, it seems that there's been so far three phases to this war. The initial one, where it was an attempt by Russia to, to smash in and cause a, a collapse in the Ukrainian state, and that didn't come off. The phase two was a much more steady focused advance in the parts of that Russia really needed strategically. That was very successful and, and very rapid. There was a Ukrainian response to throw huge numbers of reserves into the front line to stem that advance. That cost them a lot of lives, but was ultimately successful. Stage three came where training and weapons coming in from the West was such that the Ukrainians actually, to my surprise, got to a position where they were able to launch successful offensive operations. That's been going on for now maybe a month or more. The, the Russian response is to, be, is to call up another 300,000 men. Stage four is going to be a winter war with all these additional Russian troops. If I was the Ukrainians, I wouldn't be wanting stage four. I would be wanting to call a halt to this and to take Putin up in that offer of negotiations. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. 
Yeah, David, I, I would just add that the, you know, the statistics of the casualty is the thing. Obviously, we in the West are denied truth about Ukrainian casualties, but all of the evidence uh, coming in from, from the battlefield is that the Ukrainian casualties are horrific and increasing because we're now down to relatively small units of men without air cover or proper artillery cover advancing you know, uh, in these attacks on, on the Russians. A figure of 65,000 Ukrainian killed have been, has been circulating. I believe there's some truth in that figure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not much higher. And that figure is for kills. That's not for killed and wounded. And of course, what is the West doing prolonging this bloodshed? Indeed, right. We're going to need to move on. So uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do uh, share the material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, and just a quick reminder uh, of uh, the event taking place on Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday in London, uh, the Free Assange Human Chain. Uh, the effort to surround Parliament with people. I think, uh, Brian, everybody needs to be getting out for this in the same way that they did uh, against lockdown, for example. Yeah, because uh, if if it's not done, then we know what happens, and that is more free speech is going to disappear. Um, also, uh, just pop this up on screen. Um, Ian R. Crane, we have not forgotten all of the excellent work by Ian R. Crane. And of course, a major part of his life was standing up to expose and challenge the environmental disaster of fracking that is now rearing its ugly head again. And so we're going to encourage people who've got an interest in the fracking agenda and in particular stopping uh, the mad destruction that it is. Uh, we need those fracking people to stand up and be counted again. And of course, ultimately, we need somebody uh, with Ian R. Crane's uh, standing in order to help drive through more common sense, I would say, to stop the fracking agenda. So if you're interested in the subject, um, watch out for others who are speaking out. And of course, there's a need for people to come together uh, to produce um, some momentum to a, an anti-fracking stance. Where does that take us? Well, I think this uh, takes us back on to you, Mark, and you've, you've uh, chosen uh, some interesting uh, stories from the USA here. And we're back on the subject of migrants. Uh, this is something which uh, just does not go away in, in America. And uh, I know that there are many people who are deeply concerned as to what's happening as a result of these policies in the States. What have you, what have you got to tell us? Well, the, the angle of this article from American Free Press in the latest edition is that the way I start the article out anyway, is that the mass media cartel acts like it's a big surprise or news that they're finding dead illegal entrants, illegal aliens at or near the border. And uh, my sources tell me this has been going on for five, six, seven years. And ranchers will routinely find three a day, five or six, maybe eight a week, especially the larger ranchers near the border, they'll find uh, the dead illegal aliens. And they can't tell the authorities about it, generally speaking, the Border Patrol, the state police, et cetera, because oftentimes then those agencies look at the ranchers suspiciously, like, did you do this? Did you kill them? Uh, were you responsible for, you know, 
encroaching upon the rights of the illegal aliens. And so there's a lot of frustration down at the border among these ranchers, some of whom have good sheriffs that really want to solve the problem, but others have sheriffs that are part of the, you know, the Texas state apparatus, and they're trying to play both sides of the fence on this, pardon the pun, and uh, they, they're trying to sweep some of this under the rug. So uh, the bottom line, however, though, is that there's been uh, dead migrants found along the border for a long time. It's not really news in and of itself, but now this article also talks about the Darien Gap, which is some dense jungle between Colombia and Panama, where you go from South to Central America. And some Venezuelans, uh, reports are telling us, are so desperate, evidently, allegedly, that they're trying to go through the Darien Gap and many are dying there. And so what's perplexing is why so many people want to trek so far to go to the United States. Um, the United States is not paved with gold. Uh, I've talked to people that have lived here a few years that came here legally and illegally, and they were rather disillusioned that it wasn't, you know, the promised land or the Shangri-La that they, that they were told. Uh, that being said, uh, there's still this mad rush to get here by so many people. And the big concern I've written about is what if Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador lose such a large part of their um, able-bodied population, you know, the most uh, able-bodied young men and women to plant and harvest crops, et cetera, et cetera, that they cease to function. And the leaders, so-called like Mr. Biden, the misadministration in the White House, they never even talk about that. They never really talk substantively about having diplomatic relations with these Central American countries and asking them, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do to stem the flow of these people before they ever leave your country? What are you going to do about too many able-bodied people leaving your, your nation and um, having even more dysfunctionality and then making those countries even more vulnerable to the trepidations of the drug cartels? The drug cartels feed on that weakness and they promote it. And then so many Americans like myself, especially those that live closest to the border, my best sources there, are just flabbergasted at this, that, that the American government and even, and even governors like Greg Abbott in Texas don't do more to address international diplomacy and get to the bottom of those uh, countries of origin and why those countries of origin and their governments are, are doing nothing to stem the flow and how they're getting through all the various borders and all the way here without Mexican, without, excuse me, without Mexico intervening. So um, th there's a, you know, we talked about that intentional invasion a few times back that I was on UK column. It's a really important new video about the situation at the border. And I understand it's being updated from time to time. I think it's just an intention, intentionalinvasion.com if anybody wants to check it out. Very compelling, not too long, uh, very interesting. Again, it's intentionalinvasion.com. And that explains kind of the underbelly of what's going on. So um, well, the well, death toll is rising. And, and uh, Biden just seems oblivious to the fact that so many people are dying to get here. But people like myself want to know why. We want to know the deeper causes and effect of this. Oh, sorry to uh, interrupt you there, Mark. But of course, we see this happening in Europe. It's happening on a worldwide scale. And it is remarkable right. that if we come back to the name of uh, Peter Sutherland, who was pre previously, he's, he's now 
died, but formerly he was the UN's ambassador for migration. He said that we need more migration to break down the homogeneity of nation states. He, he was very open exactly. in stating this. And so when we look for the cause, we've got at some stage to look at policy within the United Nations. Uh, what fascinates me about this is how the narrative is portrayed in the mainstream press on both sides of the Atlantic. We see similar narratives in so many different areas. And that's not, to, I'm not in any way trying to uh, suggest that there's anything uh, not real about the migration. Yeah. And what I'm, my point here is how that migration is being presented to people yeah. uh, in the press. And uh, uh, we need a bit of honesty there. We need a lot of honesty. Well, uh, Mark, give us some uh, good news. You've got a title here, Free Speech Wins in Texas. <clears throat> yeah, federal judge Andrew S. Oldham, O-L-D-H-A-M, um, has ruled that uh, the way social media companies are uh, censoring information runs up again the, it runs up against the First Amendment, excuse me, and he even called it an inversion. I repeat, an inversion of the First Amendment. And so in Texas, um, the federal judge uh, social says here, um, social media companies have tried to argue simultaneously that are, they are both platforms and publishers, and they'll be whichever one they want to be uh, what it, uh, based on whatever fits their situation. But... Um, uh, this judge has ruled that uh, they can't have it both ways. And so th this is really good news in terms of um, making these uh, these uh, social media companies, you know, decide and, and, and for society to define what they are. Are they a platform or are they a publisher? If they're a publisher, they can, uh, you know, attenuate to a, to a great degree, of course, what goes on their, on their systems. But if they're just a platform, then they're just a public utility and they've got to honor the principle that I may disagree with what so and so says, but I, you know, I have to defend it and I have to give it equal play. So um, it's a good step forward. There is one irony, though, real quick. Uh, Greg Abbott has been shown to support um, the very same social media companies and trying to get them to move to Texas, Facebook, et cetera. And through a Texas enterprise fund, uh, there has been millions of dollars shelled out to try and entice. Uh, those social media companies to set up shop, uh, just like Amazon has been enticed to set up shop in Texas. And critics have pointed to that and said, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is being duplicitous and trying to turn Texas into another Silicon Valley. And will that necessarily, through these tax-supported tax subsidies in the enterprise fund, will that necessarily weaken the influence those companies have on, you know, on, um, human interaction on, on human narratives and, and political debates. So um, uh, Greg Abbott has been accused of duplicity in that sense, uh, fighting against the censorship by these companies, but then supporting them with tax dollars. So a lot of critics are wondering how that's going to pan out. Okay, thank you for that. And very quickly on this one, but it's just a nice lead into the uh, next segment. Uh, we've got Sanity Wins in Italy. Uh, apologies to the lady concerned because she's been cropped. But uh, do, do, you, uh, do you think this is true? Sanity wins in Italy. I think to a large extent it is. Um, she is associated with uh, Silvio Berlusconi. And some people uh, kind of have a furrowed brow about that that I've talked to. 
Berlusconi is kind of an enigmatic figure. Maybe she needed his support to float her boat enough to win uh, the leadership in Italy. But I think I think so. Um, ironically, this resonates with people like Vladimir Putin much more than any Western leader right now. The West culturally and socially is is really going down the toilet, and the mass media cartel has been sort of uh, aiding and abetting in that process. But as this front page AFP article says, for her eloquent and righteous defense of traditional values, Miss Maloney has been denounced as a right, far right demagogue that must be stopped. The recent Italian elections remind Americans as the 2022 midterm elections approach that the bigger issues at play are the forces of populism, populism, tradition, and family against the forces of globalism, anarchy, and financial and intellectual slavery. So, um, you know, you don't have to be an absolute angel. Uh, Maloney doesn't have to be an absolute angel, nor does Putin, uh, for us to see clearly that what they're describing about the West is largely accurate. So there's a lot of irony here, but the decadence of the West has got to reach some sort of breaking point and uh, alternative voices like our own are going to help to a great deal to try and set the record straight. So. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on to economic matters then. And uh, of course, uh, Liz Truss, well, she was speaking on the BBC yesterday uh, and it's like a broken record, but just so that everybody uh, understands the broken record, let's just have a quick listen. I understand how worried people are and I understand that people are struggling and it's very, very difficult times. And this is a global problem. You know, we've got Putin's war in Ukraine, the aftermath of COVID. And what is happening around the world is that interest rates are rising. So the Federal Reserve have pushed its interest rates up to 4%. You know, this is a global but this phenomenon. Is not- so it's a global phenomenon, not phenomenon. She keeps banging the same drum. It's a global phenomenon. It's Putin's fault. It's COVID's fault. It's got nothing whatever to do with Western policies. Uh, but of course, one of the policies that uh, was in her mini budget and quasi Quartang's mini budget uh, was the policy to reduce uh, the 45% tax rate to 40%. Unfortunately, that one didn't fly too well. Uh, and so uh, quasi Quartang uh, pushed this out at 7.25 this morning. Uh, let's just zoom in on it so we can see. Uh, from supporting British business to lowering the tax burden for the lowest paid, our growth plan sets out a new approach to build a more prosperous economy. That should really make us feel That's excellent. Great. Feel better already. Do, absolutely. However, he said, it's clear that the abolition of the 45p tax rate has become a distraction from our overriding mission to tackle the challenges facing our country. As a result, I'm announcing we are not proceeding with the abolition of the 45p tax rate. Uh, we get it and we have listened. Uh, this will allow us to focus on delivering the major parts of our growth package First, our energy price guarantee, which will support households and businesses with their energy bills. Second, cutting taxes to put more money back into the pockets of 30 million hardworking people and grow our economy. Third, driving supply side reforms, including accelerating major infrastructure projects to get Britain moving. And David, I'm sure you're deeply impressed with that statement. (laughs) Well, rule number one, I never trust anyone who says they get it. Right, because that's that's a sure sign that there's something not functioning. Um, we get it, and we have listened. Well, actually, what really happened here is there was a backbench rebellion, and they couldn't get it through the Commons. So 
it would have been nice if we'd been honest about that, but hey uh, And likewise, um, the comments from Liz Truss, uh, Formula 8, yes. Uh, obviously, someone in the, in the spin doctor mode has, has decided that she's got to show empathy. So she's been given some, some notes on what empathy looks like, and she's gone off <laughs> and she's, she's said empathetic things. I don't think that works. Right, because I actually don't think the people who are genuinely frightened really want the leader to say, "Yeah, I know. Well, it's terrible." I don't actually think that actually calms anyone down. I think what you actually need in those circumstances is something, you know, akin to leadership and maybe courage, and maybe honesty. But uh, these are these are dreams that I can have, uh, but uh, I can't see fulfilled. Uh, well, uh, do you think Michael Gove gave some honesty yesterday morning? Well, I've got a, I've got a clip from Michael Gove now. Um, as well as not trusting people who get it. Um, one, of the, one of the things I suggest we have is that we've got a complex world. Economics is full of moving parts. Um, geopolitics is very, is very confusing. It's difficult to know how to, how to navigate it. One shortcut to this is find out what Michael Gove thinks and then do the exact opposite. This advice is very good. It's so good, in fact, that sometimes Michael Gove follows it. We have an example. You're profoundly concerned. Yes, uh, because there are two things that are problematic, two major things that were problematic with the fiscal event. The first is the sheer risk of uh, using borrowed money to fund tax cuts. That is not conservative. And then the second thing is the decision to cut the 45 pence rate and indeed at the same time to change the law which governs how bankers are paid in the mm -hmm. city of London. Um, Ultimately, at a time when people are suffering, and you're quite right to point out the concerns that people have, not just over mortgages, but over benefits, when you have additional billions of pounds in play, to have as your principal decision the headline tax move, cutting tax for the wealthiest, that is a display of the wrong values. It sounds right now, if things carry on as they are, you won't be able to vote for these measures as a Conservative well, MP. The good thing, there are many good things in what Liz said, and I do welcome the, the broader points that she made about but growth. Can you vote for it as it stands? But the critical thing is, Liz has acknowledged that uh, with hindsight, with welcome hindsight, that mistakes were made in the preparation for Friday. You're carefully avoiding my question about whether or not you'll vote for this in the House of Commons. Well, I don't believe it's right. So there we go, Michael Gove talking about right and wrong. So you've got to be on edge when you hear that. Um, and he was, his point was, well, using borrowed money to fund tax cuts is not conservative. Now, the Conservatives have been using borrowed money to fund everything for two years now. So um, it's interesting that, that it's the tax cuts that get it. Now, uh, there is an issue here because there is such a thing as a Laffer curve. And for those who don't know what it is, we've got a little diagram here. And what it shows is is that beyond a certain point of maximum revenue, the more you increase tax rates, you get less money in. And in fact, the point of maximising growth is to have much less tax. So if the Conservatives were actually genuinely going for growth, tax cutting is what they should be doing. They should also be cutting the size of the state, right? And maybe more on that shortly. Now, we have here uh, some, some tweets from a, an account called Cut My Tax UK, people after my own heart. And they've illustrated, I've picked out just a few examples here of historical cases where cutting the tax increased the revenue. Um, so we've got uh, 1920s America. Um, the, tax, the tax rate for the highest earners was reduced 
from 71% to 25%. But the tax, the share of the tax paid by those earning the highest levels went uh, almost doubled from 28% to 51% as the tax rates come down. Uh, in Canada, 1981, uh, the, the tax was cut from 45% to 29% in, in 1990. The tax receipts paid by the top 10% of taxpayers went up from 29% in 81 to 45% 92. Um, and in Britain, the same thing happened. They cut taxes in the uh, late 80s um, from 60 to 40. Uh, and that had come down from 82, I think it was, under Labour before. Um, and the amount that the tax, the, the highest earners were paying went up massively, so much so that 1% of earners were paying 21% of the total tax bill. And we see that uh, they, they summarise all the evidence suggests that cuts in tax from 40 to, from 45% to 40% would increase tax revenue. Now, it's very interesting that the Conservatives never even tried to make that point. It's not about funding the state. It's about political control and political favours and political power. There was no suggestion. At no point did, did Liz Truss or, 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 or uh, uh, Quasi Quertang actually try and argue their position. The, it was just a political calculation and it was jettisoned. Um, and if it was right for the country, well, it was jettisoned anyway because it's not politically convenient. And that's unfortunately what we're up against. Um, but Michael Bo Gove has uh, been publishing things in the past, um, particularly about well, the privilege of being a public service. Yes, very quickly. This is also from uh, the organisation that, that Mr Blair was recently speaking at. Uh, and it, the, the point I want to make here, who was Michael Gove? He was talking about the privilege of public service. What did he start with? Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci. He defined our times. The crisis consists precisely of the fact that the inherited is dying and the new cannot be born. In the interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. And, and Mr Gove went on to expand on this, um, eventually saying our age is not 1930s, but it's an age of morbid symptoms. The model that the current generation of political leaders inherited has been crumbling. This was just three years ago, and it was essentially the same speech that Tony Blair made, uh, made only this summer, that they don't know what to do uh, that the, the, the power base and ability to achieve anything is crumbling and they don't know what to do about it. But the key point here is this alleged conservative was quoting Gramsci, the cultural Marxist, who advocated the long march through the institutions for a Marxist takeover of the West. It was a very strange um, choice by Mr Gove and illustrates perhaps where his influences really are. Yes. Uh, David, perhaps we should remember, uh, having had Blair on screen, that uh, Mr. Trus uh, Prescott at the time, Deputy Prime Minister, was, a, was in fact a declared Maoist. So uh, we really do need to look deeply at the people who are in power. Now let's uh, bring this on screen. This is from the World Economic Forum. This tweet, of course, no longer exists because it got a bit uh, controversial. And I believe the article that's linked to it doesn't exist anymore as well. But this was the World Economic Forum's tweet. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. This was published in uh, 2016 in November. Uh, and also this tweet does still exist. So this is from December 2016. Uh, welcome to 2030. I own nothing. I have no privacy. And life has never been better was what they were 
proposing at the time. Well, uh, why am I bringing this up now? Because I just caught this article uh, very quickly in Mail Online, and it just thought me uh, made me think of it uh, once again. So J John Lewis has launched Dress for Hire service because uh, the cost of living is so bad that nobody can afford to buy dresses from John Lewis anymore. So now they're launching a Dress for Hire service so customers facing cost of living crisis can rent clothes for three weeks before returning them. Uh, so, David, uh, that seems like World Economic Forum policy in one shot there. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, what more can we say? When you say you own nothing, they really mean nothing, not even the clothes in your back. Yes. It's quite Indeed. remarkable. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to keep quiet because it's, <laughs> it's how do we report this stuff? It's not real. Uh, David, uh, called to ban a £50 note altogether to, to tackle criminal enterprises, so the attack on cash continues. Yes, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz was calling on everyone to use cash, and amen to that. Uh, transpires many people will think you're a criminal, well, at least uh, Dr. Kurt Meredith uh, will think so. He argues that uh, high-value cash, like £50, we used to have £100 notes in Scotland, we don't have those anymore. £50 notes are widely used by drug lords and tax criminals, tax criminals, oh, okay, and do more harm than good to the economy. So he's a senior lecturer at uh, the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Business School. And if you're very quiet, you can just hear Adam Smith turning in his grave. Um, Dr. Theodore Kumeridis uh, specializes in law e and economics, focusing on crime, inequality, and poverty, and believes a high denomination do note does more harm than good. It's not the first uh, time scrapping currency has been used to curb crime. Central banks across Europe agreed to stop issuing 500 euro notes uh, with that objective in mind. Uh, the, the good doctor told STV News, those who carry a pack of £50 notes may have a purpose that is not within the legitimate or formal economy. So there you go. If you, got, if you carry £50 notes, Brian, you're suspicious. Sooner or later, we should phase out the £50 note, and I go as far as saying the £20 note too. Um, by banning them, we will make it a bit harder for the smugglers, drug dealers, and human traffickers out there. Cash plays a role in facilitating the formation, functioning, flourishing of the dark side of the economy. So there we go. If only the, the government knew your every move, then all, all badness would melt away and everybody would be happy. The utopia would emerge. It's only the £50 note, the £20 note, and your ability to have any freedom that's stopping this happening, Brian. Uh, but David, this is a problem because in a few weeks' time, you know, uh, you know, uh, what a, a Mars bar is going to cost fifty quid. So, so what are we going to do at that point? <laughs> well, it may be self-correcting. Yeah, it may be. It may be that that, that uh, yeah, the inflation will solve the well, problem for us. Well, David, I wouldn't be too cynical because we don't have to worry because the bankers are going to solve the problems for us. All we have to do is just exist, and uh, everything will be provided. Now, a lot of people contacted the column uh, because they were very impressed with the uh, clips that we, we're going to now show, which is Neil Oliver from GB News talking about banks. Um, now, this raises many, many points and questions, which UK Column is going to do our very best to get stuck into in future news editions. But let's have a little listen to what Neil had to say. And uh, we'll have some uh, interaction and comment on each one as they come up. This is the first of three. I want to tell you a story about money. To be more specific, I want to tell you where money comes from. The truth of which most people are unaware is that money is created out of thin air. 
Furthermore, every single pound, dollar, euro, yen, and all the rest is created out of thin air by unelected, unaccountable bankers who meet in total secrecy and profit always from their actions. Let's imagine you want to borrow £200,000 to buy a house. When you go to the bank and ask for that money, the banker doesn't give you existing funds, cash from a drawer, for instance. Instead, he creates that £200,000 out of nowhere, money that previously didn't exist. That money is not backed by anything real, no gold or anything else. It's conjured out of nowhere and exists now only because the banker says it does. He then says you have to pay him back the £200,000 plus, let's say for the sake of argument, another £200,000 in interest. He's allowed to credit your account with money that did not exist until you asked for it, and he pressed digits on a keyboard, and then he charges interest on that previously non-existent sum. Talk about a foolproof way to make money. This is how all money is created in our world, and this is why so many people are made to live crippled by debt. Every year, the British people pay tens of billions of pounds to private bankers as interest on something that did not exist in the first place. How could I be sure? But I suspect that if you or I were to attempt something similar, we'd be thrown in jail before our feet touched the ground. William Patterson, co-founder of the Bank of England in 1694, noted that, quote, the bank hath benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. 1694, that's at least as long as this has been going on. How long we've been submitting to debt created by a handful of rich people to keep everyone else under their control. The Bank of England is technically owned by the British government and so notionally by the British people. The fact of the matter, however, is that the government does not tell the bank what to do. Like all central banks, the Bank of England is seemingly answerable to an entity called the Bank for International Settlements. The BIS is run by more unelected, unaccountable, secretive people over which we, the British, like all people in the world, have no say and no control. Well, I, I want to say first of all that um... I think he had tremendous courage in actually putting that piece out because he's getting into some areas which clearly mainstream media, as it's still called in some places, um, is really prevented from delving into the banks and how they work. Um, the clip has also prompted a lot of discussion inside UK Column. And uh, we're going to do more, as I say, in coming editions to talk about this. But just first of all, David, What's your reaction on the uh, fact that uh, we're talking about money created out of nothing? Well, this, this is a vital point that people have to understand. And, and to, to illustrate why that's right, when you go to a bank um, and you get a loan, you get a bit of paperwork and it says about your loan or words to that effect. It doesn't say our loan, it says your loan. And banks don't make mistakes like that. They mean it. It is your loan. You're borrowing from yourself. That's why there's only one signature. When you sign the contract, if you sign a contract with another party and they're giving you valuable consideration and you're, you're agreeing to pay for it, both parties sign the contract. When you sign for the bank loan, you sign. No one else signs, you sign. Because essentially you're borrowing it from yourself. And it's, this, it's the security that you offer that creates the money. So thin air is how I would typically characterize it as well. 
it's not exactly that. It's not exactly thin air. It's the security that you create that actually creates the money. But it's the banking system that does it. Um, and Neil Oliver's quite right that if you and I did that, uh, that would be called fraud, counterfeiting, and we'd be arrested. But the banks have a special privilege granted by the state to do just this. And of course, it's in the interest of the state because the state is the biggest borrower. Um, I wouldn't quite agree with the relationship between the bank, the, the, the banks and the central bank and the Bank of International Settlements. And I think the role of the government is far bigger than, than, than Neil was suggesting there. But very interesting points. And uh, the core idea here, which is that when you, when you go and make a, a loan from the bank, they're not giving you something they already have. They're giving you something that you create with your own signature on the paperwork that didn't exist before and was created out of nothing. This is part of the mystery of banking, and it's a weird and wild world indeed. Indeed. Well, I know Mark is itching to come in on this, but I'm just going to play clip two, and Mark will then, uh, will then bring you on for some comment. Let's have a look at the second part of the clip. Most people have never even heard of the Bank for International Settlements but it's housed in a great glass tower in Basel in Switzerland. It is the BIS that oversees the making and flow of well over 95% of the world's money supply via, to name but a few, the Bank of England, the US Federal Reserve, the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of the Russian Federation, and the European Central Bank. It also influences a host of other smaller central banks including in unstable and failed states like Afghanistan and Libya. We need an honest and open conversation about banks, all banks, and about another way of doing things, a way of potentially freeing the people of the world from the yoke of debt placed across their shoulders by secretive, unaccountable, profiteering private bankers. It may or may not offer the solution to our woes, but I believe it's time now to talk about it, and more importantly, to invite more people to understand what banks actually do and how they do it. If you don't trust me, how about Thomas Jefferson, founding father and third president of the United States, who said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow banks to control the issue of their currency, they will deprive people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. The Federal Reserve in the US was created at Christmas time 1913, when most members were away for the holidays. By means of the Federal Reserve Act, all control over money creation was removed from Congress and given to the Federal Reserve Corporation, a private company controlled by bankers. All this despite Article 1 of the US Constitution, which declares, Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Federal was added to the name to trick the people into thinking they, via Congress, were in control. Not anymore, not since that Christmas of 1913. Uh, so th there we have it, a little bit more. Um, David, what's your take on the second clip there? Um, well, yeah, firstly, Bank of International Settlements, the book on this is called The Tower of Basel. It's very good. Um, and it's, it shows you how it kind of 
came out of it came out of the uh, war reparations from Germany after the First World War, and then once that was kind of done. It didn't have a purpose, and it kind of created a bureaucratic organization, created a purpose for itself. It, initially, it was very hard money and sound and sensible, and the banking policies it was actually introducing were, were really quite good, not at all what it is now. Um, and uh, it changed over the years and morphed into something else. And it had one or two scandals along the way, for example, endorsing the seizure of the Czechoslovakian gold by the Nazis. Because once they invaded the country, then they became the country, so the gold was theirs. And uh, the BIS said, yeah, that's fine by us, mate. No, no problem. So, uh, yeah, an interesting organization. Um, the, the issue with the, 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 the profit-seeking private bankers is, of course, not necessarily them themselves, but the, the whole legal framework and backing up, backing up by the state. Because what happened when the profiteering private bankers in 2007 were bust, right? They should have all lost everything. Yes, private enterprise, sorry, thanks for playing, you're, you're, you're uh, no more. But that's not what happened. They were bailed out by the taxpayer. So it's this interaction. And of course, once that's done once, all restraint is really gone because there's now an acceptance that whenever there's a problem, and we've seen it just in this last two weeks, whenever there's a problem, the, the central bank will, will come in, they'll create money, they'll buy government bonds, they'll inject money into the, country, into the economy, they'll do quantitative easing, they'll create money, and the creation of money will fix things, and the central bank will look after you, and it will all be backed by the state. This is the kind of strange, inflationary world that we're in, and there is no accountability left for the banks because it's all underwritten by the taxpayer. Okay, David, thank you. And uh, Mark, what, what is your take on this? The first thing I, I want to point out is it's great that this is being done by GBN because uh, the media reform that we need is, in my mind, largely a prerequisite for the banking reform. We have to have a way to get these discussions out there to enough people at the same time to where we can have broad discussions in America, in Great Britain, and elsewhere, and it begins to expose the duplicity of the banksters, we can argue a little bit later about exactly how we'd reform things if we were to end the Fed, for example. Um, so this really starts the process that needs to be happening. Uh, that being said, uh, yeah, the Bank for International Settlements, which I covered a little bit in a recent article about the Jackson Hole annual meeting in Wyoming, and one of their bankers from the BIS, Augustin Karstens, was there calling for a new globalism. That that bank is a, a, an enigma, if there ever was an enigma. Uh, we have to have a lot of demystifying as to what the BIS actually is. What does it do? And that's something that even some of the most learned monetary reformers I've talked to are not real knowledgeable about. So um, one thing that UK Column can do, among others, is look harder and deeper and longer at the Bank for International Settlement. Um, I'd also add something too. Uh, what I've learned, and it kind of uh, complements what David was saying about when a bank makes a loan, not only are you the one creating the loan and they don't use their depositors money, nor do the banks use their assets to uh, fulfill that loan, the loan is also an asset to the bank. It's entered as, as a demand deposit account and it becomes an asset because you're paying interest on it and you're collateralizing all your property. Uh, 
your land, your house, could be your, your automobile, depending on what the loan is for. Is it a mortgage? Is it an auto loan? What, whatever. But you're pledging your assets against that loan. So the, the loan is an asset to the bank because it's an interest bearing loan and they're on the receiving end of those interest payments. But of course, it's a liability to everyone else. Uh, and this is admitted in uh, books like Modern Money Mechanics that are published by the Federal Reserve. And some of the uh, monetary reformers I've worked with over the years as a reporter have shown me the books from the Fed and they uh, very clearly spell out and, and admit what they do. And and if anyone else did it, it would be considered um, crime, a crime, basically, and you'd go to jail for a very long time. And so, um, and and the money born, you know, money born out of thin air thing. Um, what Jefferson said, I think, delineates that point the best. And and this this commentator talked about Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson talked about uh, that money needs to be a public issue, and other people uh, around his time talked about that. If it's created from thin air, that's not necessarily the problem. The problem is the interest-bearing nature of it, the debt-based part of it. And uh, under the US Constitution anyway, under Article One, as was alluded to, the, the Congress should, and I know that sounds counterintuitive now because Congress is a pretty sorry institution at this time, but the Congress, at least in principle, should be deciding the terms of money entering the economy not the bankers, because the amount that the bankers put in the economy is based largely on their own calculations, their own needs. But ideally, or at least theoretically, the people's house, the Congress is supposed to put the amount of money into the economy and the terms for doing so based on the people's needs, not some private consortium of bankers. So yep. they would maybe line up the amount of money with productivity levels to make sure kind of like a motor, right? You have to have the right amount of oil in the motor, not too much, not too little, so the motor runs properly. Or a hot air balloon, if it's too inflated, it floats too high. If it's deflated, it hits the ground. So you find the happy medium. Mark, so, that's, Mark I'm, I'm just gonna cut in slightly because we're watching the, watching the clock and you've mentioned the Bank of International Settlements. We've anticipated your needs, so we've got a little bit to talk about them. But before we do, uh, the third very short, clip um, from Neil Oliver, uh, where he was talking about the Bradbury. And I'm going to say I've got a soft spot for this uh, particular subject, because it was really the subject that started me on my journey to understanding at least something about the money supply system. And we know that a great many people uh, from very early days in the UK column have done a huge amount of work on the banking system. And a lot of that has been predicated on having a look at what the Bradbury Pound actually was. So let's have a look at this uh, last little bit from Neil Oliver, where he's talking about the Bradbury. But by 1914, the Bank of England had already been involved in dodgy dealings, creating money out of nothing. And there were far more banknotes in circulation than there was gold in the vaults to honour them. If everyone tried to get their gold out at once, such a run on the bank would have been catastrophic. At a stroke, Britain would have lost its ability to pay for the upcoming war. The bankers ran for help to the government and to the Chancellor, David Lloyd George. The August bank holiday was extended by three days. An act was rushed through Parliament, and when the banks reopened, people were offered a new kind of treasury note, issued not by the bank, but by HM Treasury in lieu of their gold. 
Since the first batches bore the signature of Sir John Bradbury, the then permanent secretary to the Treasury, the public nicknamed them Bradbury Pounds. Because each was backed by the wealth of the nation, the familiar strapline about a promise to pay the bearer on demand was unnecessary and therefore absent entirely. The people accepted the Bradbury Pounds, trusted them on sight as cash they could see and hold and spend as they liked with perfect confidence, and the banks were saved from certain collapse. It was sovereign money, underwritten by the wealth of the nation, and perhaps most valuable of all by the creativity and potential of the people of that nation. Well, there we are. Now, David, we are very short for time, and I do want to finish off with uh, coverage on the Bank of International Settlements, because still many people have never heard of this very, very powerful bank. Um, uh, Neil Oliver went on to say some other things, and he was particularly keen to say that uh, basically it was time that we started to investigate the banking system. There were a lot of questions to be asked if we were get to we're going to get to the bottom of how things worked. So I just want to stress that because he did go on to say some other things. The Bradbury Pound, I've admitted, kick-started my own interest. You have some concerns over the exact phrasing that uh, he's used in, in the piece to camera. Just very quickly, take us into a little bit of the uh, Bradbury. Yeah, so what the Bradbury was essentially quantitative easing. 1914 fashion, and um, it introduced extra money. Now, th th there was particular quirks about there because money at that point was gold, and gold sovereigns were circulating, and gold sovereign was a pound, not 380 as it costs now. And the smallest um, actual paper note was five, which is equivalent to about 400 quid in normal money. So if, there's a, if there was a run on gold, there simply wouldn't be enough cash to pay wages and, and generally uh, grease the wheels of the economy. So that was the worry. There was also huge um, pressures on all of the main banking institutions. So what the Bradbury was, was a form of quantitative easing. And it was, it was introduced along with huge capital controls, closing down the stock market, massive bailouts. Uh, the government, the treasury took from the banks all of their non-performing debt because they had a lot of international debt from countries that were at war and couldn't repay. So all of these loans were now threatening the solid, the the the, the uh, liquidity and and um, survival of the British banks. So all of those loans were taken on by the government. You know, the, people will start to recognise this. It sounds like 2007, 2008. So there's an awful lot to learn from the 2000, from the 1914 crisis. Um, the idea that it was uh, that it was that it was backed is is one I would question because it was there to basically allow the government to get the gold, and it was given as as an equivalent to gold. Now the people never got their gold back because the after the war, we went back on the gold standard in, in 1925, but only in increments of 400 ounce bars. So if you were wealthy enough that you could buy a 400 ounce bar, which is what, 600,000 pounds at today's money, then you could still go to the Bank of England and swap your money for gold. If you were an ordinary person, that right had gone. And it only that little bit back on the gold, gold standard only lasted to 1931, and then it was gone forever. And when the final link to gold went in 1971, when, Dick, when Nixon closed the gold window, that's when we saw the pound um, 
run away. The, 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 if you compare it to gold, it had gone from £4 odd an ounce to £16 an ounce in 1971. It's now nearly a hundred times that. So the, the, the actual value of our currency has been eroded hugely. And it's this sort of inflationary nature that's a concern. But nonetheless, it's very interesting areas. Uh, we were talking about this last night. Uh, we we're summarising that there's three ways of getting uh, money into the economy. The banks can create it, the government create it, or we can create it, the market, the people, and that's usually a commodity-based money. Uh, that's where I think the solution lies. Other people may have a different view. OK, David, thank you very much for that. Well, in just a few minutes, let's give our audience a bit of a lightning tour of the Bank of International Settlements, maybe the biggest bank you've never heard of. Um, so their annual report is a great place to start. And something people will notice when we look at the uh, um, total uh, comprehensive income there up at nine, uh, 918.1 uh, million. So there's, there's definitely things coming in. Uh, but it's labelled as SDR, Special Drawing um, drawing Rights. Now, I haven't got time to go into that at the moment, but let's just have a quick look at the bank itself. Here's Augustine Carstens, who I think Mark Anderson mentioned a few moments ago. And uh, you can read the forward here yourself if you freeze this, where he's talking about how well they're doing and how well their interaction is going with the other central banks. Now, the BIS comprises memberships of some 63 other central banks. And uh, we should run a little video here so that you can actually see who all those banks are. And uh, what you quickly come to realize is that the BIS has got its tentacles in countries across the world. This is an immensely powerful organization. But as we see, we will see it's very secretive. Uh, but there we are. There's the list of the uh, the banks taking part in the BIS uh, system. And if we have a look at um, their uh, board, uh, the eagle-eyed people will spot straight away that we've got Andrew Bailey sitting on the board of the BIS. Now, uh, he's the big man for the Bank of England, which says that it's open and transparent. But as we shall see with the Bank of International Settlements, it's anything but. How do you reconcile the two things? I'd suggest that you can't. So we shouldn't worry at one uh, level because the Bank of England is only about promoting the good of the people in the United Kingdom. So David, I think you can relax because uh, we're in good hands with the Bank of England. Um, we're here to care for you really is uh, what they say. But if we delve into the BIS, the first thing to understand is that they're set up almost as a nation state within their home territory of Switzerland. And I've taken some ex uh, uh, excerpts of the documentation which show how powerful they are because they list uh, data showing that nobody else is going to come in and look at what they're doing. And uh, some of this is really quite incredible, but read it because basically not only can authorities not get into their premises, um, as, as we shall see uh, here, um, they don't really want to pay taxes. And so the bank, its assets, income and other properties shall be exempt from direct federal, cantonal and communal taxes. So this is the way you do it. Tax, that's just for the little people with the Bank of International uh, Settlements. Uh, but if they have got uh, their own state within a state in Switzerland, I was very interested to discover this on the Bank of England site. 
because if we look down at the bottom, we've got a little deal which was done. The Bank for International Settlements and the Bank of England launched Innovation Hub London Centre. And I didn't get a warm feeling about this. Uh, here's the news release um, saying that it's the fourth new BIS Innovation Hub Centre in two years. Uh, we shouldn't worry because they're focused on six areas, which is technical uh, innovation, uh, next generation financial market infrastructures, central digital bank currencies, open finance, cybersecurity, and green finance. And of course, we've, well, you've stressed, Mike, on several occasions that the banks themselves are saying if businesses don't get the green side of life right, they're going to be put out of business. Um, but uh, if we look at a little bit more detail, this hub is the one is one of a number of hubs that the BIS has operated, is now opening worldwide. And as we're going to see, each hub is a state within a state. But does the government know what's going on? Well, our old friend Richie Sunak had this to say at the time the hub was opened. The UK is known for pushing the boundaries of digital finance, so it's great to have the new innovation hub operating here. Its works will help central banks to support safe innovation and boost our efforts to capture the extraordinary potential of technology. So nothing to worry about. Uh, but here's the agreement, host country agreement between the Bank for International Settlements and the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, it's the real deal document because you can see the signatures at the end of it. And uh, why are we interested? Uh, well, because uh, basically um, they have ensured freedom of action, clear of anything the government might do. And uh, the uh, premises are their private premises. Nobody's going to come into it, whether administrative, judicial, military, police, they're not going to be entering. Uh, so this is a city within a city. And are they going to pay tax and excise duty? No, uh, they're not. That's really not for us. And we're not talking Switzerland, we're now talking about BIS in UK. Uh, this is what Andrew Bailey had to say. As a central bank, we recognise the importance of innovation for the global financial system and look to support its safe deployment wherever possible. This requires collaboration between public authorities in all jurisdictions. And the BIS Innovation Hub is an important global initiative for achieving this. So Andrew Bailey claims with one hand that he's uh, open and transparent, with the other hand, well, the other part of his body is sitting on the BS, BIS board, which is anything but transparent, and is also gonna close its doors to authorities in UK. So if you wanna know what they're really up to, uh, this is something which uh, Debbie Evans discovered. Uh, here is the BIS Bulletin on Health and Privacy technology to combat the pandemic. And um, here is the editor of this particular bulletin series, a Korean gentleman. Uh, but what are they looking at? Well, they're starting to look in who is controlling data. And now we come down to the real question of what this hub is about, because they're sucking in private data and uh, that data is going into a system that the UK public has no right to see what is happening at any stage. So I'm going to end on, on this one, Mike, uh, which you had up a couple of days ago, uh, because if people have got concerns about the Bank of England, and I certainly think that they should have concerns, 
uh, then we probably need to uh, get involved with this uh, public debate. Yes, that particular public debate was uh, taking place in Edinburgh. That event's passed, but there are other events around the country. So that link uh, is still valid. Please do uh, go and have a look at that. And maybe people would want to go and ask some questions about the Bank for International Settlements, for example. And the relationship with the Bank of England. Yeah. And uh, lastly, we just say, where does this go? Well, of course, this moves us on to the World Bank Group. And what is the World Bank Group interested in behavioural science around the world. Uh, on the right of your screen, you've got the countries that they've been looking into. And of course, they're now realising that the use of applied political psychology is something where they can manipulate populations in countries anywhere around the world. And certainly if you're BIS and operating as a private state, um, the public is not going to know what their real agenda mm. is. We're going to have to end there, I think. Yes. But we've we've got some interesting uh, little memes to show our audience. Well, just a couple of uh, final slides here. The first is from Bob Moran, of course, uh, and he's got uh, some graphs there with the Matterhorn and Kilimanjaro and Everest, and then the biggest mountain on the uh, entire planet, of course, is the evidence of vaccine harms. Uh, absolutely correct. And uh, David, uh, what's Russia investing into? Yeah, so uh, this is uh, Russia invested billions into Nord Stream 1 and 2. Um, and uh, you see the clown starting to put on his makeup. It's then sailed undetected all the way to Poland, and the clown's makeup's getting complete. Exactly where the US Navy was testing underwater, underwater drones days prior, and on goes the funny hairdo, and blew up their own pipeline, and we are now fully in clown world. And then finally... And finally, a small book. I would recommend this for um, every home. It's a book entitled The Government Means Well for You, Media Tells You the Truth, and Big Farmer Wants You Healthy, and other fairy tales for naive adults. Yeah, brilliant. Excellent. Well, we've run on for quite a, a long UK column news today. I think it was worth it. We've covered some really important subjects. So thank you, David and uh, Mark, for joining us. We'll have to end there. But before we go, I'd just like to say uh, during the news, we've had a guest in the UK Column studio with us uh, to have a look at how we do things. Um, this, this is uh, wonderful. We're able to do this sometimes for people who are showing an interest in what we're doing. But uh, welcome. OK, we'll end there. Thanks. Back, back in a few seconds for some extra. OK, back in a few seconds for extra time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining UK Column News today. Bye-bye.